Hello and welcome to the Foreign Influence Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Nikolai. And we are trying something a little different because we, <laughs> even though we are here in sunny Singapore, we We're could both not be here, in exactly the same place. But because of the virus. Well, kind of, yeah. The other virus. And our schedule wasn't working out. So right. we said, hey, let's try this where we just, uh, so if there, it seems like it's funky, there's like a slight delay as we're in the middle of something, it's because we're actually chatting online. Well, this might be a little bit awkward, but hey, since we're both moving back to other places, might as well start now, right? Yeah, this is the thing. As we've said previously before, Nikolai is returning to Paris. I'm returning to Peoria. It's exactly the same. Exactly the same. Actually, yeah. I would prefer to go to Peoria. Would you? Well, come oh, on yes. over. God, so, so much more optimistic. Man, God, all the existentialism <laughs> oh, in Paris. I was going to say all the ennui. The ennui, oh, the ennui. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, life is so hard. May I have another baguette? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, that's, that's what we're trying out. Uh, but yes, yeah, speaking of the virus, as you said, it's hard to get off this topic lately, coronavirus. Uh, boy, Europe's on the front line now, right, Nikolai? Uh, looks like it's just getting started, man. Like, apparently, there's a whole bunch of Italian villages under quarantine uh, because of this recent outbreak over there. It's really not looking good, especially because I don't trust the capacity of Europe as a whole to uh, actually enforce these quarantines. Oh, geez. I'm not quite sure people would listen if you tell them to stay uh. home. I'm not sure everyone would. So I think the latest data on the Italian front is that there have been 62 cases just uh, just a few days with two deaths. Um, so it's quite worrying. It's quite worrying. Yeah. Well, it, and, you know, here in Asia, of course, we had South Korea where there was an explosion of cases, uh, mostly connected to a church slash cult. <laughs> well, I've got uh, like, love them. God love Bill. <laughs> it, it is it is some church of Jesus that is apparently cult-like. You know, here in Singapore, we had a church connected to a quarter of the cases here. A quarter of the cases. Apparently what happened in Korea, that they were actively uh, discouraging the wearing of masks, uh, saying that people should not fear the illness because God the, loves the them. The church was not. Yeah. Or yeah, the yeah, church yeah. was. The right. church was, Yeah. So that's always well, quite weird. Well, you know, that's official policy here to only wear the mask if you feel sick. Yeah, but do definitely and, and stay home are... when you feel sick. Uh, I think the problem with the church was that they were encouraging everyone to just come over and have a prayer about it. Ah, got it, got it, got it. God will save us. Yeah, thoughts yeah. and prayers. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, this week I had my own little uh, scare. I had one of my kids come down with a fever. And uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, it turns out he got tested and it was only influenza. Yes, only, only the, the best kind of virus, it wasn't the bad one, it was just the good one, right? By the way, he's perfectly fine now. He went back to school, so he's doing fine. But yeah, we I never thought I would celebrate yeah. getting influenza. <laughs> yeah, I guess not, right. <laughs> Well, let's just hope that things turn out uh, better than uh, than they might in Europe. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm definitely quite concerned, especially when you look at Korea and there's uh, a talk about talk there about how most of the pe these people were infected 
either because they refused to wear the mask and they didn't follow proper protocol, which I suspect will be a giant issue in Europe, uh, and because there was apparently this one woman who was just, you know, going out for dinner and just not worrying at all about the, the fact that she was infected, and she infected a whole bunch of people. And I think, mm, uh, unfortunately, similar similar problems might emerge in Europe. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to be afraid that this might just run its course. Yeah, I think uh, this is just going to become part of the fabric of life, much like the seasonal flu. Right? Yeah, exactly. Much like the seasonal flu with just a very bad first season, probably. Right. And then no immunity, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that, that's just something that's a little bit scary to think of, right? Well, the fatality rate is quite higher than the seasonal flu in Hubei and specifically in yeah. the city of Wuhan. But that's a city that, well, I was going to say didn't know it was coming, but there's some pretty clear evidence that they were covering it up as it was beginning to balloon out of control, Yeah, uh, which speaks to the approach that China takes to this sort of thing. But the hospital system got overwhelmed. So it seems if you can keep the hospital system from getting overwhelmed that the survival rate is really pretty good uh so that's something to hope for uh, but you can only do that with vigilance right? yeah you can only do that with vigilance and i would be quite skeptical on the capacity of any of our hospital systems to uh, stay afloat when there's really a, a mass uh, pandemic going on uh you Europe, think so, that huh? Yeah, in Europe, I don't think we have really giant capacity at hospitals, and they're they're, they're massively underfunded. Uh, staff is already working uh, 24 hours a day, pretty much. They're already overstretched. I think in the U.S. it probably won't be much better. Hmm. Uh, but but you know, you can set up you can set up uh, emergency centers and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think yeah. there's ways around it. Yeah. Well, and just one final wrinkle that uh, I saw in the South China Morning Post this morning that uh, in China, they think that the infection can stay with people who have recovered. Oh, really? <laughs> and so they've started oh. quarantining some people after they've recovered to make sure it's out of their... Uh, but you know, all of the science and research on this is all yeah. early, early, early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is, But it just feeds into my sense that this is just here to stay. How long would you quarantine them? <laughs> Just for life. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I, Once you catch it, you go into the colonies. bubble. colonies. <laughs> yeah, right. You're done and done. <laughs> You're done uh, and done. <laughs> At what point does it become more economically viable to quarantine the healthy, right? Oh. I just quarantine See, I like the it. healthy. I'm not it's going anywhere, easier. man. Who said you're healthy? Have you looked at yourself <laughs> recently, <laughs> Come on. <laughs> exactly. My God, look at a mirror. God. <laughs> it might be the webcam. But. Right. Well, hey, moving on to uh, moving on. So something that struck me was there was this thing, something I hadn't heard of, the Munich Security Conference. Uh, I guess it takes place every in year Munich. In, in Munich, where uh, Europeans and Americans get together to talk about how they're the best of buds and how everything is going swimmingly in the relationship between the two. Mm. That's great. Yeah. So it was a short conference this year? Or? Yeah. <laughs> right. So I guess uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, he got up and he said, the West is winning. Oh. Uh, I guess winning against uh, something. And apparently the Europeans were, were not so optimistic. They, uh, they're, like, they're just negatives. It's that ennui thing again. 
or, or maybe they forgot that they were part of the West these days. I'm like, you know, it's always hard to interpret when an American says these kinds of things. <laughs> what side are we on here? Like, are yeah. you winning? Are we fighting? Like, what? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe he did just mean the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, because there's been a lot of conflicts over uh, Iran and whether to stick with the security agreement that we had with Iran. Um, and, of course, now China, Huawei... Uh, Europe is going forward with using Huawei as their 5G communications technology. Yeah, yeah. And the U.S. is trying to stoke uh, like a tech war with China. So there's a lot of um, a lot of strains between Europe and the U.S. And as you have you and I have talked about before, boy, come on, we kind of got to stick to our guns, at least on our core values and beliefs and. If we fracture, I don't know. Not such a great thing. Yeah, that is not good for anyone, I think. Yeah, yeah, in the long run. Wow, this is really uplifting, all of this. Yeah, yeah so far it. we're having a great time. You know what? I'm going to toggle to the interview that we have today, oh, which yes, I thank think you. is more uplifting. Uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Naveen Sika. He is the CEO of an ag tech startup uh, called uh, Terviva. Uh, which has uh, been helped and funded by a company called the Yield Lab. Uh, Terviva is looking to promote the use of a ancient plant, but in new ways in order to provide uh, huh. food and other products going forward. Uh, but what really struck me was this concept of ag tech. You know, we hear a lot about information tech and fintech, financial tech. Uh, so what's happening in agriculture? Because, you know, food, I don't know, maybe we need it. I might guess. be overrated. I, I don't know. But food is, you know, okay. So I, anyway, I figured we'd talk to him. Uh, I had a good conversation when he was in Singapore the other day. And um, like I said, we're going to talk about ag tech, uh, his company, and uh, how this field works. So um, something optimistic here to talk about. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll start talking to Naveen. All right, let's dive in then. Terviva is an agriculture technology company, or what we call an ag tech startup. We've been around for a little over nine years, and we do two things. One is that we grow this lovely tree. It's an Asian species of bean tree called Pangamia. And we grow it on poor quality agriculture land, and we reforest that land with these trees, and we make lots of beans, four to five tons of beans an acre. That's one thing that we do. The second thing that we do is we take these beans, which are not naturally edible, they're very bitter, but they're loaded with vegetable oil and protein, and through post-harvest oilseed processing, we convert those beans into edible vegetable oil and plant protein. And the upshot, the sort of value of doing these two things is that we reforest poor quality agriculture land, we make plant protein and vegetable oil at very large scales at low cost, and their carbon negative ingredients because we're reforesting that land with a tree and the inputs that we have to put in and the carbon intensity of making the actual food products is less than the carbon that we put back on the land from growing the tree. So again, the, the pronunciation, pongamia? Pongamia. Okay, what is, what is this? What is it, yeah, what is it? It's, uh, it's actually a very well-known tree in Asia but it goes by a lot of names. So here in Singapore, they actually call it Mempari. In India itself, the land of many languages, it's got about four or five major names. It's got a taxonomic name in 
Mandarin. Um, and it's got various names throughout the Western world. Sometimes it's called Indian beech tree. Sometimes it's called the pangam tree. Um, but it's, it's been around the world for a long time because of the very reasons that we like it. Number one, it's a hardy tree. So people like to plant it and not have to worry about taking care of it. And number two, in ancient times in particular, the vegetable oil that you get off the beans, they had those beans, that vegetable oil has medicinal properties, principally antifungal and antibacterial properties to that vegetable oil. And so for that reason, it was kind of brought around to different parts of the world. It was brought to Australia, for example, pre-Western contact. It was brought to Hawaii in the United States by Polynesians. So it was sort of ported around the world because it was tough. You could get these beans off the tree. You would get vegetable oil. It was medicinal. You could burn it for lamp oil, things like that. So pretty well known, but I think um, kind of overlooked as a food crop because quite honestly, we're still sort of in the human scale uh, of, of time. We're in a very modern era of looking for new forms of plant protein and vegetable oil. Even soybeans is really only like an 80-year-old industry. So it's, 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 it's time is now when people are looking for new food ingredients that are sustainable, that are scalable, that are nutritious. Uh, Pangemia is ready to be now a food crop. So as you said, this, this plant does not, it, it, historically is not great food. Historically is <laughs> I mean, you, bitter. You describe it as a medicine. Nobody tends bitter. to want to eat right, That's correct. medicine. Yeah. So uh, where did you even get this notion <clears throat> that I can convert this tree into, into, food. So, into food? Well, I'll be honest, I didn't have that notion when we started Terviva. When we started Terviva, it was back in late 2010. And at that time, the world's focus on the pangamia tree was on the use of the vegetable oil for biofuel because people didn't want to use food quality land to grow a biofuel crop. And so people looked at the pangamia tree and they said, hey, this tree is, grows really well on poor land and it does produce a lot of vegetable oil. Could we use it for biofuel? So that's how we were introduced to the tree. We thought that was a really great idea. And we had an opportunity to grow the tree on abandoned citrus tree land in Florida. So at the start of Terviva, 2011, all the way through to 2015, we were principally looking at bioenergy. And around 2015, we were farming this tree with some very large farmers in Florida, and it was working. It was growing well, cheaply, starting to yield. We showed that we could harvest it with mechanized equipment. So it was in 2015 that I met a very prominent landowner and entrepreneur in Florida, former chief operating officer of Tropicana, which is a big juice brand, and he had went on to start a few other food-related startups. He came to me and he said, can you make this into food? And I said, probably not, because nobody else had done it before. I mean, it's been around for a couple thousand years. You would have figured somebody would have given it a whack. Right. And he encouraged me to not sort of take that as reality. Um, he had been uh, observing other types of new products that emerged in the market over his lifetime. Uh, and he said, why don't you give it a go? You know, I'll invest a little bit of money into the company to see if we can figure it out. And it did take a couple of years, but by around 2017, we had fundamentally developed methods for making pangamia into edible quality vegetable oil and protein. The big thing we had to do was de-bitter 
that vegetable oil and that protein. And that's, that's because there's specific flavor compounds in pangamia that are in relatively high concentration that are not that straightforward to remove, but we perfected using conventional oilseed processing equipment to pull out those flavor compounds. And then you get, what you get is a very healthy, very nutritious, and very tasty set of vegetable oil and protein products, um, which you can try if you'd like. Oh, is that right? I should get your reaction to them. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Do you want to? Sure. Here what? is the first. You got to you got to take a whiff of the raw oil. Okay. I'm not going to pass. Do out not here, eat right? this. No, okay. no, not at all. It's just bitter, stringent. Uh, yeah, smells like weeds. This is the yeah. This is the <laughs> scalable production of an edible oil, which you can, if you want to put okay. a little on your hand or something like that, you can try it. The smell is it. almost completely gone. It's very neutral, very yeah. light color, and it's loaded with what we call omega-9s, okay. which are a very healthy fat ah, for okay. food. Got it. And it's, it's, we've, I've been in Singapore the last couple of days with these samples going around to some of the major food companies in the region, and they've been tasting it, and yeah. they're excited about it. Okay, yeah, because that was going to be my next question is yeah. you've got to sell this on to somebody. Yes, <laughs> and yes. You've got to get through the established <clears throat> soybean and, and all of yeah. the other markets that are out there. So yeah. that's the tricky part, right? It's tricky, but they always say in startups there's nothing better than being in the right place at the right time. These days, the consumer is absolutely looking for something different than soy and palm. Soy and palm are, in my opinion, even more villainized than they probably deserve. Uh, palm obviously is considered um, environmentally unsustainable, and also the vegetable oil that comes off palm is considered unhealthy, full of saturated fats. Soy, a lot of reputational problems with Brazil and the rainforest in Brazil and a lot of soy being expanded there. And interestingly, soybean oil, which has something called omega-6 fats in it, is considered now pro-inflammation. And people are concerned about that. And the, the fat that everybody loves is omega-9s, olive oil. It's like, you know, always considered the sort of Mediterranean diet, very healthy for you. It just so happens that pangamia is naturally high in oleic acid, which is, makes it really healthy. So um, there's an opportunity to bring a, if you will, Ayurvedic Eastern medicine tree crop to the food market. So there's some good brand value there. But consumers, beyond kind of quality, taste, function, consumers really care about sustainability. It's a thing that even I've been surprised by the receptivity of major food companies to the sustainable attributes of what we do and how they want to bring that to their consumers. Well, there's the sustainable component. And then, for example, where you're growing in, in Florida, they've had an entire crop wiped Collapse. out by a disease, oranges, yeah. <laughs> synonymous yeah. with Florida. Yes. Uh, and those are the kinds of people you're working with to give a new cash crop yes. to them. Yeah. Yes. And again, I mean, I, if anybody ever actually tells the full story of Terviva, it'll be the story of being very lucky. Um, and Florida is another example of us being very lucky because it's not exactly every day that you get to catch in your own backyard a major crop collapsing where your own crop could replace it. But the, what's interesting, Bill, is that in the history of agriculture, new crops often emerge on the back of something failing. So very famously in this region, 
Up to World War II, this region was synonymous with rubber plantations. And then, of course, synthetic rubber came along, and then some intrepid Englishmen decided to take a West African tree crop called oil palm and bring it to Southeast Asia. At a time when consumers, 1950s and onward, were suddenly so interested in functional vegetable oils, processed foods, and things like that. So palm really happened because rubber collapsed. Famously in the US, at the turn of the 20th century, Soybeans was nothing, nothing. The big crop in Central American farmland was oats because we used them to feed plow animals and horses. And then the engine came along, cratered the need for plow animals and horses at just around the time that our modern livestock industry was being born, our, our, our consumption of uh, easily accessible protein, animal protein, and soy came in and filled the market need for protein for animals. So there's all these stories I could go on and on about, you know, how different crops have kind of come down and new crops have come up, but sufficient to say, who would have thought that in our own backyard we could build a supply chain of pangamia because something else was falling apart that was a tree crop? You know, you mentioned sustainability. Uh, something that really interested me in your story is this larger concept of ag tech. Yes. Uh, and, you know, when we think about the technology information sphere out there, certain tech spaces are sucking up all the oxygen, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Infotech, uh, right. fintech. I mean, everyone's heard of blockchain and cryptocurrency, and of course, everyone's heard of Facebook. Yes. So, but ag tech is food. Yes. So, uh, I'm just interested me that there are these other tech spaces that maybe we should be paying more attention to. Yeah, I have, um, boy, I could go on and on about the opportunities and challenges in the ag tech space as compared to what I'll call traditional venture investing in like software or hardware. Um, but um, a couple of immediate thoughts. One of the real challenges in agriculture is that it's an old industry and it's a very, uh, long supply chain industry, you know, global supply chains, lots of moving parts. And by definition, because of the biology involved and the nature of that supply chain, adoption of new technologies in agriculture is slow. It's a very slow thing. And farmers, for that matter, because of the way that they're kind of compensated and there's government subsidies and floors and protection, by definition, farmers are not real risk takers they're actually risk managers. They don't necessarily think too much about making a ton of money. They wanna make sure they don't lose a ton of money, right? So if you think about that as the world of agriculture, and then you bring venture capital and startups to the table, it's almost the exact opposite rhythm. It's like go fast, scale fast, rapid adoption, and that there's a tension there between how agriculture actually works and how venture capitalists wanna see a return on their invested capital. So what I think as, as ag tech is kind of maturing and shaping, what that means is that venture dollars now are typically going to things that are more rapidly adoptable, more rapidly embraced. That has meant not a lot of investment all the way upstream in agriculture on the field side. Those dollars are kind of going down. Suddenly, a lot of money is going toward consumer-oriented food. So. Obviously, in the U.S., some of the big examples of this are the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger, right? Multi-billion dollar companies born off of selling a plant burger to a consumer. But you haven't actually seen that kind of 
multi-billion dollar company being born on the farming side. So it's an interesting space. Um, I think there's a need for innovation across all aspects of the ag supply chain. But to me, in a way, it's not surprising that most of the dollars are going toward, you know, burgers and nut milks and, you know, new types of grain snack foods and things like that. Yeah, because you want to know that there's a market out the end. Yes. If you're a venture capitalist and you, you bet. It's part of your exit. It's the strategy. way it works. Yeah. Well, you know, just coming back to Terviva for a moment, yeah. I mean, you've been in business 10 years now. That's right. Uh, you're actually in Asia raising more money. Yes. Right? Uh, so you've been able to keep the startup going and yes. getting funding. Miraculously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's quite an accomplishment. Um, so, you. how do you, uh, how do you, keep people interested. As you say, it's a tricky space because their money always wants to go elsewhere. How do you yeah. keep investors coming back? You know, I think, um, I think there's a couple of reasons why we've been able to persevere. The first is that on its face, this idea is pretty simple and pretty good, right? You grow this tree on poor land and it's going to produce beans and you process it into food. And that sounds like a really good thing. You know, marginal land, reforestation, carbon negative food, plant protein. And you just have to say plant protein these days in our space. And everybody's going to be like, yay. Right. And, and the funny thing is, you know, if something sounds easy, we all know it's hard. And if something sounds hard, we all know it's impossible. Right. So um, I think we've had enough of a narrative to get people saying, you know, this is makes sense. It's worth a shot. I think the other thing that's kind of really kept us going is that there's a very healthy aspect of sort of hardcore traditional agriculture in what we do, right? There's a very healthy aspect of farming and processing, and it feels, um, it feels like it fits in the current agriculture supply chain. So we're not coming in trying to do something like really crazy different, right? Um, and I think that makes it that makes people feel sort of comfortable that we can operate in the system, but drive some change in it too. Well, the typical software approach, right, is destroy everything. Yes. And, <laughs> yes. and you're not proposing that. Which I just, I just think, you know, I mean, I think it's really, in a way we're proposing to destroy stuff, but I think it's really hard to completely reinvent the agricultural supply chain as a single company. Um, in a way, you know, we, um, what we're doing I guess different is we're trying to farm a permanent crop for core food ingredients rather than an annual crop. And our, you know, our theory, our thesis about this as we go out there is that, you know, continuing to pound on corn and soy is like saying the answer to our future energy needs is clean coal. Sometimes you just need to change it up, right? You need to go solar or wind, something different as a production system, right? In our minds, that's what a permanent crop is. It's it's the solar panel to the clean energy space, right? And, um, you know, again, I think that it's great when you can plug a solar panel into the grid, just like you can plug a pongamia bean into the grid, right? So there's, there's some analogs there for how we're trying to build our business practically, but we do think it's going to make a big change. So you, yeah. tell me about yourself yeah. and how you got into this space yeah. and came across the pangamia tree. Yes, yes, good question. I was too stupid to know how hard it was and not stupid <laughs> enough to screw it up yet. Uh, so I, I got my first exposure in agriculture about roughly 20 years ago. I was 
I spent a summer, my last summer of college, working in West Africa for the US State Department. And I had a couple of really cool projects. And one of my projects was to go peek in on some agriculture-related infrastructure projects that the US government had funded in West Africa. And um, I enjoyed that. And as I, when I graduated, I was very lucky to work in two uh, top-tier management consulting firms. And I had a series of different industries and projects that I worked on. And the projects that I liked the best were the ones around natural assets. I really gravitated toward physical goods at the bottom of the pyramid, so to speak, that we all needed, agriculture and energy. I was less interested in financial services and healthcare and things like that. And um, so as I worked my way through my early professional career, I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I knew I wanted to try to do something around natural assets and I had no formal business training. So I, I went to California. I got my MBA at UC Berkeley, which is an amazing science school. And I got very involved in um, the momentum around clean technologies that were coming out of the San Francisco Bay Area in the 2008-2009 timeline. Um, worked with a number of folks to evaluate technologies um, while I was in grad school. And the pangamia tree was actually something that crossed my desk. Never heard of it. Liked the idea of a tree growing in marginal land and producing beans and vegetable oil. Didn't believe it was possible. And so I was sort of futzing with the idea and I was looking at a couple career options after I graduated. And one of my co-founders at the time convinced me to take a short trip to India to see the pangamia tree in action because it's, a, it's an industry there. There's a lot of beans currently being grown for these non-edible applications. And I was blown away by it. I saw trees growing in very difficult conditions, actually producing these beans. So I came back, um, I convinced my wife to give me the latitude to work on the pangamia tree uh, for late 2009 and into early 2010. And you know, we did what all very small startups do at that time, we enter ourselves into business plan competitions and pitch events. And, and literally, Bill, what happened is in May, of 2010, we won two different business plan competitions for a total of about $150,000 of prize money. And we had no company name, no bank account. <laughs> and it was kind okay. of, I mean, we were kind of calling ourselves Terviva, but it was sort of very early. And we had to make that go, no go choice. Are we gonna like cash these checks and incorporate ourselves or are we gonna not do this? And we did. Uh, we, we cashed the checks in 2010 started to pay the first couple of employees in the company that were all scientists principally. And in 2011, we were fortunate to raise our first capital round, first real capital round. That's the story. Just uh, kind of took it as it came. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, And with a commitment to an environmental outcome. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we really thought that this tree could be the linchpin of a new way of producing agricultural products. Any other thoughts? No, uh, this was great. Um, I'm so excited to be in region. There's so much activity happening here in Singapore around the future of food, the future of agriculture. And so I appreciate being here. All right, so that was talking to Naveen Sika. He is the CEO and founder of the ag tech startup Terviva, uh, supported and uh, helped funded by the Yield Lab. We really appreciate his uh, taking the time. So it's nice to have something, how tech is creating some positive 
future in the world in a clear Absolutely. way. Is this going to change your life back in Peoria, Bill? Well, hey, maybe. I mean, I don't think we have the soils necessary <laughs> for this, but it, he does talk about uh, it competing with soybeans, which, of course, soybeans and corn, man, it's what we do oh, in downstate what you Illinois. Do. Mm, yeah. Nice. But, you know, that wasn't the only positive. You know, let's go to the good news. We're, we're just going to continue. Oh. We're just going to continue this good news. So let me bring this in. So much good news. Because that's our good news music. But spotted an article in The Guardian that uh, AI is going to be able to fix the uh, bacterial resistance problem. Right? So uh, one of the big problems we have going forward is antibiotics are not going to work as well, thanks to evolution. And AI might be the solution. Uh, It came up with... Well, it... Yeah, AI identified a new antibiotics, um, a new antibiotic uh, through deep learning. I wouldn't say that uh, it's gonna solve all the problems, but uh, hey, this is the good news. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll link to the article. So I just thought it was good that these information techs applied to medical tech might help solve one of these problems that we could be looking at down the road. Anyway, thanks for listening this week. Uh, appreciate your taking the time. Hey, go and subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, you can find the link in the show notes, um, you know, and Patreon. We're on Patreon as well. But we appreciate your taking the time. Absolutely. And uh, we will be back next week with another episode of Foreign Influence. Talk soon. <laughs>